You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today our reading will come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10 through um, chapter 62, verse 5. And that will be found on page 621 in the Bibles found in the pews. Um, If you do not have a Bible, please take one as our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your your righteousness and and all the, the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be called desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be called married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so a young w- w- woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading comes from the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 886. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you all. I'll try again. Merry Christmas to you all. We are in that historical season the church calls Christmas Tide, the 12 days after Christmas, where our worship together highlights the event of Jesus' birth as the incarnate God and what that means for us now. Uh, my name is Lane Cowan. I'm one of the staff here at Redeemer Anglican. And whether you are an old friend or a visitor amongst us this morning, it is good to be with you in worship this morning. And each Christmas season at this time of the year, our lectionary, which is a communal Bible reading plan, leads us through a set of scripture lessons where different portions of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, are highlighted in turn, one after the other. Today, we read from John 1. Imagine a reporter asking four different eyewitnesses to describe the same event in order to get their particular details, the highlights from each perspective, the way that each of them see this event. And so other gospels highlight the gene genealogical history of Jesus' family tree or reference Old Testament themes and promises to show how Jesus begins to fulfill them, or hone in on the factual details of Jesus' birth and give you a play-by-play. -play. But this gospel, John, from this morning, this gospel highlights the theological meaning of Jesus' birth and the profound consequences for us today. 
But before we jump into what those are, I'd like to pray and love to have you join me as I do. Father, we greet you this morning in gratitude, and I ask that by your Spirit's help, the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to pull out three questions this morning as we look at John chapter 1. The questions are, what is the word? What is this word? The second question is, what does it mean that the word became flesh? And the third question is, why is this good news? What is the word? What does it mean that this word became flesh? And why is this good news? First, what is the word? So the Greek word translated as word here in our Bible is a Greek word logos. And at the time of Jesus, this was a very meaty a very philosophical term. It's where we get the word logic from. It can be translated as reason or rationale. But this term meant more than just a form of thinking. It meant more than a kind of a reason or rational thought. You see, the Greeks believed that there must be an ultimate reason or rationale for life, a divine reason or explanation implicit in the cosmos, ordering and giving form and meaning to all of what happened in the created world. The logos was thought to be an active, rational, spiritual principle that permeated all of reality and held it together. Think of the idea of a theory of everything, which is an ongoing attempt even today to discover a mathematical model that encompasses and explains all the fundamental interactions of nature and existence. And so, in this day, as Jesus lives, and in this day, as John writes, logos is this divine reason that answers the question, how does life work? And even more so, what is life for? This is the word. And so John opens up his gospel with a barn burner. In the beginning was the word. He's saying, yes, there is indeed a logos and an explanation for how the world is to be. You see, in the Greek philosophical circles and schools, uh, they had given up on any definite conclusive answer. And so they spent time essentially coping. How do we go about life given that we cannot figure out the logos of life, the full and complete and decisive explanation? So whether you were of the Epicurean school where you just tried to have a good time, while you could. Whether you were of the stoic school where you tried to live life morally and thoughtfully as best you knew, all agreed that there was no way to actually answer the question, what is the logos of life? And John says, here, there is the word, the logos. And he starts not with an abstraction, a principle, a law of nature as the logos. He gives us a person. Jesus is this word. And this was no small claim to Jesus's audience, to John's audience here. It was a new, a shocking idea that the logos would be incarnate in a person rather than simply a principle or a formula or a rule of life. 
Now John goes on to say, this logos, this word was with God. John says it twice, right up front in verses one and two. He says again at the end of this passage in verse 18, where he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus, the word, is with God. Now, this isn't simply a matter of taking attendance here where Jesus is being noted as physically present. And this last mention in verse 18 is perhaps important here to understand this. The phrase describing Jesus at the Father's side is sometimes translated in English Bibles as Jesus being in the Father's bosom, which might actually be the better translation here. The Greek word for bosom or side, as it's translated, the Greek word is kolpos, and it describes something that holds or encompasses something else. The word was used to describe a mother gathering a child to, into her embrace at her bosom or breast. Or it's, oh, the same word was describing a, a bunched fold of a garment that wrapped about or enfolded a person. And the same term was even used to describe a bay or a gulf carved into the shoreline offering safe harbor for boats. It's a very full, dynamic word. And Jesus is described as being within the kolpos of God the Father, within, held, encompassed in his bosom, in his breast, at his side. So it's not just that Jesus is next to God the Father, but is within him. And it's an intimate term when used to describe the relationship between two people. And so we have to notice that a defining essential characteristic about Jesus is that he is held within the bosom of the Father. He and the Father are united in an intimate communion. And this is the first instance in all the created world of such a profoundly intimate relationship because this was true in the beginning. John is telling us what has been true about the nature of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son since the beginning. Now, I'm curious, do those words in the beginning remind you of anything? They're meant to. They are meant to. They are meant to for John's listeners as well as for us today. John's listeners would recognize immediately that John is overlaying a testimony about the creation of the whole world with this testimony about who Jesus is. You see, the very first words in the Hebrew and Christian Bible from Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so our Bibles open up with the story of how God was present and through his own loving, creative desire, the rest of the world came to be. But here's another mic drop moment in John's gospel because he locates the person and the work of Jesus right alongside and within God the Father in the beginning, before all the created world came about. Why does this matter? Why is this so important? Why does John open up in his first verses with this language about Jesus, the word? Because the biggest point John is making here is that the Father and Jesus, the word incarnate, are not only together from the beginning, but in fact, 
they are the same. They are both God. Look at verse one, the word was God. And then verse two, he was in the beginning with God before any created order. In verse three, all things were made through him, the logos, the word. And without him was not anything that was made. Jesus is present with the father before anything else was created because Jesus himself was not created. He already was. Jesus has the same creative power and authority as God because he is God. Look at verse 14, which reads, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side, who has made him known. Jesus, who was not made after time began, but was present with God and created all things alongside God, has also made God known in a way that no one and no thing ever could. See, John is telling us that God and Jesus are the same in terms of their ultimate existence and presence, their creative power and authority, and their divine, intimate relationship. A quick aside here, when we recite the Nicene Creed together in just a little while, I encourage you to note all the echoes from this scripture. We'll use the language of Jesus as begotten, not made, of one being with a father. And the language of through him all things were made. See, the nature of the triune God, which is the three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all united in one, it is a mystery. It is hard to wrap our minds around uh, this truth given our own three-dimensional realities of life. It is not a mystery that we can fully resolve, but it is a mystery that we can participate in. You see, throughout history, the church has carefully worked to describe what we can know. And the Nicene Creed is a beautiful, beautiful document worked out over the first 300 years of the Christian church's existence as one of the clearest summaries from scripture about the nature of this Trinitarian family, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just notice that in the Nicene Creed. And so now coming back to our text, we see John emphasizing who Jesus is, the divine word of God held within the Father's bosom from the beginning. And all of Jesus's authority and credibility come from his identity as God and his relationship with God. Now, if our minds aren't already blown here, Jesus has, or excuse me, John has another mic drop moment. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who was with God and was God took on flesh and came to dwell among humankind. What does it mean that this word became flesh? Another quick mention of the Greek vocabulary here, that word for dwelling is actually the Greek word for tabernacle. So you could translate this verse to read, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle shows up first in the Old Testament book of Exodus when the Hebrew people were brought out of enslavement in Egypt by God and were reformed, formed anew to be his own people, the Israelites. And as God was teaching his people how to live according to his word, he had them build a special meeting place, this tabernacle tent. 
right in the center of their large camp where his people could come and be with him. The tabernacle was where communal worship happened. The tabernacle was where sacrifices were made by the Israelites in order to honor God and make up for their sin. And the tabernacle was a place of protection. But more than anything else, the tabernacle was a place where Israel, God's people, could come and gather safely to behold the glory of God. You see, earlier in the story of Exodus, when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's word through the Ten Commandments, he asked to see God's face and behold God's glory directly, firsthand. And God refused out of kindness, explaining to Moses that his full glory would be too much for Moses and would kill him. But instead, God provided this tabernacle where his glory dwelt behind a curtain, where his glory was concealed and safely restrained enough so that Israel could draw near to worship him. And then Jesus comes, comes to earth as the enfleshed or embodied tabernacle, the very place where God's glory is most clearly and perfectly held so that anyone can come and behold this glory safely. Jesus puts an end to the need for any other sort of tabernacle. And so why is this good news for us, friends? Why is the word made flesh come to dwell or tabernacle with us such good news? Well, for one, we can know the logos of life. The divine reason, the divine explanation, the divine order for what life is about and how life is to be lived. God didn't give us a watertight argument or theory to prove and reveal himself. Rather, he has given us a watertight person. God has given us the person of Jesus. And so we can look to Jesus, what he said and did, how he lived, how he treated people, how he invited his followers to come and participate with him, share in his life with him, and especially look to how and why he died and know the divine explanation for how life is meant to be lived. We can know the logos of our own lives by coming to know the life of Jesus and participating in a shared life with him. But friends, we can also behold God's glory. Now, not all of you might have woken up this morning saying to yourself, I want to behold God's glory today. I don't do that every morning, for sure. But if you wonder what God is like, if there is a God, and what he is like. To know the father, you look to the son, just like in any family where the child reflects the personality of the parent, the culture and formation of that family, the intention and desire of that uh, family's culture. We can look to the son and know the father. And Jesus' family is beautiful. It's beautiful. But this is also good news for us because we can be held in Christ's bosom, in Christ's kolpas, we can be held in Christ just as Christ is held in the Father. You see, we are invited to join this family of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. 
And our friend, the Apostle John, knew this firsthand in an incredible way. I invite you to look at the cover of your liturgy for a moment with me. This image on the front is a detail of a fabulously ornate wooden carving along the altar of a cathedral in Merseburg, Germany. And this particular image, this detail shows the Last Supper as it's described in John chapter 13. And so you can see Jesus sitting at 12 o'clock facing us. And you see John reclining on the table under him, held in Jesus's embrace with Jesus's arm over the top of John's shoulder. And this is at the point where Jesus has announced to his friends that one of them would betray him, which as you can imagine, stunned the whole table. They decide to ask the disciple whom Jesus loved to ask Jesus for clarification. They chose specifically the one reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This is in John 13. Why do you think they asked John? Was it because he was the closest in proximity to Jesus? It seems that all of them around the table heard Jesus' pronouncement clearly enough. So it wasn't a matter of uh, you know, not hearing as well and John being the closest heard Jesus' voice most loudly. Did they think John was the best to ask because he would likely get the most favorable response? Kind of like siblings strategically nominating one of their own to go in and ask mom or dad for a special favor because they think that sibling has the best shot at getting a yes. We don't know for certain, but I believe it was because of John's relational closeness to Jesus. You see, that phrase describing John as reclining at Jesus' side, that is the same word, kolpas. Meaning you could translate this phrase that John was held within Jesus' bosom. And this is not just a description of a physical proximity. This is about a profound, intimate relationship where Jesus is embracing or holding, protecting and sustaining the one who is within him, John. And I think his fellow disciples around the table recognized something of the profound and powerful intimacy that they shared. So I'll ask a funny question here. I mean it earnestly, though. Who has access to your bosom? Think of yourself stretched out on a couch, perhaps for a nap. How many people would have the right to come and join you, lay their head on your chest? How many people would think it completely natural to ask to be enfolded in that sort of intimacy and protection from you? It's probably a short list of people. It probably should be a short list of people. <laughs> and yet we are given that same invitation to presume to lean on Christ in the same way, to join John and so many other believers held in the bosom of Jesus. This is good news indeed, that the word made flesh walked this earth and offered this invitation to any who would receive it. And so friends, as I said, we're in the season of Christmastide. It is a funny period for many of us where Christmas day has passed and a lot of the scheduled activities with family and friends have been completed. At this point, probably all the presents have been opened. Perhaps all the Christmas cookies have been eaten. Yet we are left trying to make sense of whether Christmas is over. When do we take down the tree? When do we stop planning special times to see friends and family? When do we resume the normal rhythms of school and work? When do we stop watching Christmas movies? 
And as the new year is about to begin, the calendar year, the lunar year, we are encouraged in so many ways to be looking and planning ahead. And yet so many of us are still processing what just happened. Because Christmas is loaded, friends. Christmas is loaded. With so many hopes and expectations, it is loaded with the opportunity for so much joy and beauty that it makes you ache for the fact that it cannot last every day of the year. You cannot keep loved ones with you all the ways that you hope to. And you cannot order your days and rhythms in the same way that we do for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And so we ache for the beauty that we've glimpsed that we have to wait again for the next year. But Christmas is also loaded with so much opportunity for disappointment and loneliness that the experience we know is so far from what is presented in those Christmas movies and those holiday cards and those catalog ads. And so if you're not a Christian here, and I know not everybody is, we're so glad to have you. And I invite you to consider, what is it that you hope to experience in a Christmas season? So often we look to Christmas as the concentration, the clearest example of what life is supposed to be about. And if you watch one Hallmark movie or pick up a pack of one set of Christmas cards from Target, you're going to get a whole bunch of different reasons, logos, for what life is supposed to be about. So I encourage you, consider what is your reason? How do you make sense of your life? What answers the question for you of what your life is supposed to be about? And I ask that for all of us. I encourage all of us to continue through this season of Christmas tide to look to Jesus. The word made flesh. How does he answer the question of what life is for? As we navigate this Christmas season, as we contemplate what just happened in the rearview mirror, but we are not done with Christmas yet. What does it mean to consider Jesus made flesh who joined us on this earth in all the vulnerabilities of this life and offers us himself as the real lasting reason for the season? Let me pray. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do thank you. Thank you for inviting us into the family of God and as we look to this beautiful and perfect Trinitarian family that has been true since before the beginning of time, Lord, I ask that you would help each of us to know and see what it means to take up the invitation to be held within Christ, even as Christ is held within you, God the Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.